Let's hear God's word from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, and we'll begin reading with verse 12. Who is the wise man who may understand this? And who is he to whom the mouth of the Lord has spoken, that he may declare it? Why does the land perish and burn up like a wilderness so that no one can pass through? And the Lord said, Because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the bales which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood and give them water of gall to drink. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles whom neither they nor their fathers have known. And I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider and call for the mourning women that they may come and send for skillful wailing women that they may come. Let them make haste and take up a wailing for us that our eyes may run with tears and our eyelids gush with water. For a voice of wailing is heard from Zion. How we are plundered. We are greatly ashamed because we have forsaken the land, because we have been cast out of our dwellings. Yet hear the word of the Lord, O women, and let your ear receive the word of his mouth. Teach your daughters wailing and everyone her neighbor a lamentation. For death has come through our windows, has entered our palaces to kill off the children, no longer to be outside, and the young men no longer on the streets. Speak, thus says the Lord, even the carcasses of men shall fall as refuse on the open field, like cuttings after the harvester, and no one shall gather them. Thus says the Lord. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 24 of Jeremiah chapter 9. Let's ask for God's blessing as we come to his word. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we come to you today with hearts that are afflicted by loss. We acknowledge our mourning. We acknowledge our sorrow. Lord, we cannot fully express what a loss the departure of Bobby Williams is to us. Lord, as a member of the congregation, as an elder, as one who served so faithfully in good works, whether at church or elsewhere, as one who led Bible studies with so much diligence and enthusiasm for your word. Lord, as a grandfather, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, Lord, how much he meant to everyone gathered here, only you fully know but we acknowledge the depth, the severity of our loss. But at the same time, Lord, we acknowledge the crown of rejoicing that has been placed on his head. We acknowledge the wonder and the transport with which he saw, he sees the face of his beloved Savior. And so, Lord, now as we come to consider his favorite portion of your word. We pray that you would open our minds and hearts that we might see in this passage some of the glory that he saw, that our hearts may be comforted by knowing the Lord who does loving kindness, justice, and judgment in the earth. 
We pray, Lord, that you would speak to each one according to our need this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The prophet Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote not only the book of Jeremiah, which is filled with tears, with mourning, with lamentation, but he also wrote a whole book called Lamentations, which consists of a series of five laments over the difficulties, the disasters, the distress that the people of Judah and Jerusalem were experiencing at that time. Jeremiah had many reasons to weep. One big reason was the hard-heartedness of the people. The passage that we've read comes in a section where Jeremiah has preached against their insufferable arrogance. They believe that they will be protected, that they will be shielded from harm, that no disaster will overcome them because they have the temple and they're keeping the temple functioning. But that's not true. They profane the temple every time they use it by their lack of genuine commitment to the Lord by the unrighteousness that they practice and that they think will be covered by a few religious rituals that cost them very little when you really break it down. Jeremiah is grieved over their hard-heartedness. Jeremiah is grieved over their sinfulness. And Jeremiah is one of the books where the hard-heartedness, the sinfulness of people is very vividly displayed. Jeremiah is also grieved because of the disasters, because of the torment, because of the affliction that comes upon them. We read that in the context that we read. There will be great slaughter when the Babylonians come, when they destroy Judah and Jerusalem, when they set fire to the city, when people are slaughtered to such a degree that they're like heads of grain on the ground and there's nobody to pick them up. There's nobody to give them a decent burial. Jeremiah lamented over the judgment that would come over the suffering that would reach the people. Jeremiah sometimes lamented because he didn't understand. A few chapters further on, he'll argue with God about a drought that has come. Or when God tells him to buy property from a relative and seal up the title deed, Jeremiah argues with God a little bit on that occasion because he doesn't understand if the Babylonians are going to destroy everything, if people are going to be carried away into captivity, what's the point of buying land? What's the point of securing the title deed in a safe place? It's all meaningless from Jeremiah's point of view. It's an affliction of heart to him. So in one way, you might think, Well, Jeremiah is a very appropriate choice then for a sad, for a solemn occasion. Embedded in Jeremiah, there are gleams of light. There are places where there's a jewel shining amid a very dark backdrop. And the passage we have for today, verses 23 and 24, is part of that. You had all these people, the people to whom Jeremiah was preaching, and largely, at least as far as he could tell, without result, whose hearts were hardened. And in what did they trust? Where did they repose? Where did they have their confidence? Well, they trusted in their wisdom. They trusted in their strength. They trusted in their riches. They trusted in the possession of the temple, as you can see if you go back to chapter 7. They had many different grounds of confidence. But all those grounds of confidence were useless. They were pointless. They were vain. They were a refuge of lies. They would do them no 
good at all. But Jeremiah does more than weep and lament. Jeremiah does more than diagnose the issue. The whole book of Jeremiah is really encapsulated by something that he says in chapter 2. Through the prophet, God speaks and he says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've carved out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the basic indictment of idolatry. That's the basic indictment of worldliness, of living as though this world were the only thing that mattered, as though this life were all that there is. There's two evils, and they're opposite sides of the same coin. When you turn away from the living God, you reject the only fountain of living water. You reject the only possible source of an answer to the deepest thirst of your being. You condemn yourself to eternal thirst when you turn your back on God. Of course, people don't think that way. They think they're going to find their contentment. They're going to find their security. They're going to find their identity somewhere else. And so they carve cisterns, cisterns of wisdom, cisterns of might, cisterns of riches, cisterns of entertainment, cisterns of pleasure, whatever it may be. But God says, Those cisterns, those water tanks are broken. They hold nothing. Everything you put into it will leak out again. You don't need a water tank that's broken and empty. You need a fountain of living water, a fountain that never runs dry. Now, because of his historical context, because of the people to whom he was preaching, Jeremiah was called upon to tear down and to destroy before he built up, before he planted. He had to weed the ground very thoroughly before it was ready to receive any good seed. And he does that when he calls them to wailing, when he calls them to lamentation. He does that when he describes the calamities that they can anticipate. And he does that when he warns them not to glory, not to be proud, not to find their security in wisdom or might or riches. That's the negative side of the message. It's a very important preliminary. We can't skip over that because we also need to hear that. We also are tempted to forsake the fountain of living waters and carve out for ourselves some other water container from which we dream, we delude ourselves that we will satisfy our true spiritual thirst. We also are tempted to glory in our achievements, in our possessions, in what we have, in what we can do. But boy, all of that can be taken away so quickly in the blink of an eye. That warning is important. It is essential but it's preparatory. It's not the whole story. It leads into something else. Because the message of the Bible, whether Jeremiah or whatever other part of Scripture, is not just abandon the idols, forsake the refuge of lies, repent of your sins. It includes that, but it includes more than that. There's also something to take its place. God doesn't just say, everything you value, everything you care about, that's a broken cistern that will hold no water and leave you thirsty, leave you with no recourse. God doesn't do that. Neither do his spokespeople. And so Jeremiah says, don't glory 
in these things. He warns you away from them, but then he gives you something to put in its place. He points you again to the fountain of living waters. Forget the broken tanks. Forget the broken cisterns. But satisfy your thirst. Drink deeply from the everlasting fountain. Glory in the Lord. Now, this word glory, it can mean boast. It can mean to be well known. It can mean to make notorious, to announce the fame. But what's the idea of glorying here? Well, your glory is what you're proud of. Your glory is where you take refuge. Your glory is what gives you confidence. When you're nervous, when you're not sure about something, when you're going into a new situation and there's butterflies in your stomach, what do you think about? What helps you through that? That's your glory. Well, if you think, hey, I'm capable, I'm competent, I've got this, where's your glory? Your glory is in yourself in one way or another. If you think, I've done this a thousand times, it'll be fine. Where's your glory? Your glory is in your experience. Now, those are little examples. Those are trivial examples. But it goes down deeper. What comforts you in the face of loss and sorrow? What do you hold on to when your whole life gets turned upside down and you're tempted to despair? There's where your glory is. We are made to glory. We have that capacity and we should use it, but we should use it well. We should direct it to the proper object. Anything about you is fundamentally not a good reason to glory. But let the one who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows the Lord, the covenant-keeping God who exercises, whose work is loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. Where should our glory be? Our glory should be in knowing God. Now, let me clarify a potential misunderstanding Right there. The glory is not, I'm so great, I know God. Look at my depth of theological knowledge. Look at how profoundly humble I am. You understand the contradiction in terms. That's not where the glory is. The glory is not, I know God. The emphasis being on the I. The glory is, I know God. The emphasis is on him. He has chosen to enter into a relationship with me. He has communicated to me knowledge of himself. That's my possession. That's my glory. That's my hope and my comfort. That's what keeps me going. And it's interesting that it says he understands and knows me. In other words, this is not just theoretical. Is there a God? Yes, there is a God. This is not just I can give you a list of some of God's attributes. This is You know God, you understand him in a way that you begin to follow his ways that you put into practice in your life, loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness to the degree that you're able to do that according to your own calling, according to your own station in life. This is not a theoretical knowledge merely. This is a practical knowledge. This is knowledge of a person. You don't say that you know a person because you've heard their name. You know they exist. You know where they work. You know a person when you've met them, when you've interacted with them. That's the glory. 
The glory is not about us. The glory is that God enters into relationship with us, that he makes himself available to be known. And how does he do that? He does that in loving kindness, in a mercy that has no cause in us, in a mercy that is steadfast, in a mercy that is continuing, in a mercy that carries on through all our ups and downs. There is judgment. God does not compromise the standard of right and wrong. There is righteousness. God is perfectly faithful to all of his people. God keeps his promises. God does what he says. And where does God make himself available to be known? How can we say that we know, that we understand the Lord who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth? It's in Christ. That's where God is revealed. That's where God is available to be known. The Lord Jesus himself said it. This is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. He said it again another way when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said it again another way when he stood up And he said that whoever believes in him out of his belly, out of the belly of the believer, will flow rivers of living water. He said it again when he told a woman at a well that whoever drank of the water that he gave would never thirst again. Loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness are revealed in Christ, and they're revealed supremely at the cross. Of Christ. Jeremiah struggled to understand God's purposes. Jeremiah talked to God about it. Sometimes I would say Jeremiah argued with God about it because God's ways can be difficult to understand. There are many reasons for lamentation. Jeremiah was able to say that the Lord exercised loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, and we can see that. We don't understand everything about the cross of Christ. That's a subject that's too deep for any of us to reach the bottom of. But we do see that there was loving kindness. God sends his own son, his only begotten son, his son in whom he delights. And he sends him to die in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserved, crowned with the curse that we had earned. That's loving kindness. You see God's loving kindness more deeply, more clearly at the cross than you would ever see it anywhere else in any other way. But you also see God's judgment, don't you? Even when it was his own son, his beloved son, who was charged with our sins. When our sins were laid to his account, God did not demit from the punishment. Paul says it, he that spared not his own son. God did not diminish what sin deserved, even when it was his own son bearing the penalty of it. You see justice, you see judgment there more clearly than if none of us had been redeemed from our sins. You see righteousness. God had promised to send a deliverer way back in the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve fell into sin. God had already promised that the seed of the woman would bruise the seed of the serpent. 
And God was faithful. God was righteous. God kept his commitments. And God kept his commitments in a way that honored and upheld the law, that showed us the majesty, the gravity of breaking the law more clearly than anything else would have done. But that also, as Charles Simeon expressed, put his loving kindness, put his mercy into brighter, sharper, clearer relief than any other way would have done. And so in the cross, you see the wisdom of God. You see the mercy of God. You see the justice of God. You see the righteousness, the faithfulness of God. And it's from the cross that the voice cries out to everyone, saying, turn away from your broken cisterns and come to the fountain of living water. Whosoever will may come and drink of the water of life freely. The Savior tells you to come, to believe, to rest, not to glory in what you have or what you haven't done, not to glory in the sins you've avoided, not to glory in what a good person you've been, not to glory in anything about yourself, but to make him your refuge, to find your satisfaction, your rest, your solace in him, to know that he is enough, to know that there in Christ is a comfort sufficient for life and death, a comfort in which you may live and die happily because you're not your own. You belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let the one who glories, glory in the Lord. Amen.